actually live, whether we like it or not. <laughs> Good prep, guys. Way to, way to get off on the right foot. Welcome back to First Strike. I'm really excited about this episode because we have a special guest with us uh, tonight. <laughs> Before we start the show, got to plug our sponsor, FaceToFaceGames.com, the number one place to get your Magic of the Gathering singles. It's me, my usual co-host, Mr. Robert Lombardi. How's it going, Rob? Life's good. Man, I feel like I've, I've been gone for, for months. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's possible. Uh, even <laughs> like we, we had a, an episode without any regular host last week. I think they did a great job. We had a uh, shout out to Alex Bianchi and Andy Football Peters for uh, showing up and Medina for uh, the end of the episode. And today our special guest is from the current number one competitive podcast in Magic the Gathering. From the game podcast, got Brian Gottlieb in the house. How's it going, Brian? Wait, I have a question. Since I'm a special guest for this episode, does that mean I'm not getting paid? Because that's a, that's a big game changer. We didn't just we didn't negotiate prior to coming on. Oh, so he's figured it out. <laughs> well, that's a wrap, boys. <laughs> See you guys later. Yeah, how's it going? How's it going? I think I think the game podcast is really shooting up there. I think uh, Gabby Sparts. Tweet it out. What's your? Uh, it's always cool when someone, a known personality, or someone posts makes a popular post on Reddit. What's your most popular cast? It's always nice to see for strike amongst people's choices, and 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 the game has consistently been what people recommend for for competitive uh, play. So yeah, it's been cool. I think we're we're very much hitting our our stride. You know, we like spent some time feeling each other out as co-hosts and like getting our vibe going. And I think, you know, that's something any podcast does. We certainly did it here as we all got to know each other. And not that, you know, I didn't know Jerry before, but we had just never made content together before. And I think now we're kind of getting into the sweet spot and we're talking a lot about, um, you know, the kind of more theoretical stuff, which I really like. Um, and I think, you know, the timeless content that people are going to be able to go back a couple of years from now and check out, and it's still going to improve your game, hopefully. So it's been a lot of fun. And I, you know, I, I love that our two communities overlap too, even though KYT is trolling me today by calling me a guest. I, I'm still a host. I think, did you fire me KYT and not tell me? <laughs> I've just been busy, man. It's, it's tough. You know, it's, it seems like it would be real easy to just show up for two podcasts and talk for a little while, but combined with my work schedule, it has been tough to keep both up. So. I do feel bad that I haven't been popping on first strike as much lately. I mean, yeah, it's it's not easy uh, because anyone could just like press record, but then you actually have to have some content uh, to put out there. So you definitely need to still stay in tuned with with the meta game or what people are playing or saying, and then actually have an opinion on all these things. Uh, this past weekend, let's just jump straight uh, to it. There was this uh, GP Grand Prix Oklahoma City. Uh, won by Scapeshift, and we saw a bunch of, of Tron in the top eight, uh, including Black Green Tron by Seth Manfield, and a bunch of uh, Tron that were classified as Mono Green Tron. They didn't play the Fatal Push that Seth played. They didn't play the Collective Brutality in the Boar in a Ravenous Trap, opting for just green, just not needing those cards, I guess, for more consistency. Uh, nothing too surprising. And again, for me, at least, a, a very diverse... Uh, top eight as usual, a mix of Living End, a Jeskai Breach, a Dredge, Elves once again, cracked the top eight. Anything that really surprised you, Rob? Yeah, this top eight is just filled with decks that roll uh, like, you know, Death Shadow, Jundi type of decks. So uh, I assume I, I didn't watch any of the actual coverage 
But I have to assume, given this top eight, that the field was just littered with Obzon, Jund, and some form of, of Death Shadow decks. Um, just like, you know, these decks uh, just get steamrolled by other decks like Storm and Ad Nauseam, usually. Um, and the fact that the entire top eight is good against a subset of the meta <laughs> means that that meta was probably very well represented uh, throughout the tournament. Um, I've been working on a bunch of different Obzon lists online, and I might need to put a lot of that work on hold because the online meta is going to shift by this weekend to be almost entirely Green Black Tron and other nonsense garbage that I don't feel like trying to battle up uphill against. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's just talk about it anyways. Like, what were you brewing and what, what drew you to, to the cards that you wanted to brew with? Yeah, so I was um, just, I guess, every time I went into a league, I was playing against, like, five completely different decks, like, just, like, all over the place, completely random. Um, and I felt like I didn't have uh, the sideboard I wanted with Eldrazi Tron uh, or Burn um, uh, to kind of, like, combat the metagame in a way that I felt was useful. So um i kind of looked at if there are any obs on lists that were doing well and there was like a 5-0 list that had you know it's kind of like a grim flare uh obs on mid-range deck that had you know it was like not you know 90 10 against anybody is like probably 50 50 across the board and i felt like you know having access to cards like uh surgical extraction and rest in peace and stony silence and uh, you know, all that spicy goodness and a bunch of discard in the main deck is probably a reason, reasonable place to be. Um, and I, I did well with it for like, I don't know, three or four leagues. And then two or three leagues later, I was like, couldn't win a match to save my life. <laughs> so I kind of went deep on the brewing after there. And I, I haven't resurfaced yet uh, to, to figure out where I'm going to stand. But <laughs> well, you posted so many screenshots with Siege Rhinos. <laughs> Uh, all I can tell you is that um, in the late game, being able to displace a Steed Rhino twice a turn is, is usually uh, uh, a nice addition to that big fat 4-5 body. It, it ends the game real fast. And I, I've killed a Mono Red player through an Ensnaring Bridge twice. <laughs> and that, that felt nice. <laughs> uh, do you, you also think the, like, the current metagame is, is, of course, hostile to the five-color humans deck? Is that why we're not seeing it as much? Um, I just, I, I think people just kind of play what they want. So there's people that like Aethervile decks, and those people are going to play humans. I haven't seen any Merfolk. Like, every time I run into an Aethervile deck, it's, it's not green-white hate bears, it's not Merfolk, it's always humans. So my, my assumption there is that, like, all of those people just migrated to the, to the humans list. I, I think the deck's good. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to play Obzon, because you just have, like, so many ways to deal with Metal Image and Freebooters, so they can't really pick your hand apart in a way that really like neutralizes your ability to, um, to remove their threats. Um, and I ran into it a bunch. Like I, I played it almost at least once a league. It's kind of subsided a little bit uh, recently. I'm not sure exactly why that is. Maybe all those people decided they want to try Green Black Tron for a little while before going back. <laughs> Something I'm not sure. Green Black Tron is definitely getting very popular online. Though. I, I played against it uh, quite a few times uh, this week already. Uh, do you have any opinions on whether you'd go green-black or just straight mono-green? 
I mean, I think the green blacklist makes more sense. You just have more diversity. I don't think you're losing too much by going that way. Um, I mean, I, to, to be fair, as long as you have some sort of green Tron deck, I think you're in a reasonable spot to just get lucky. And I don't think it matters too much after that. Like, just try and hit natural Tron and cast Karn on turn three, right? Like, that, you're really just rolling the dice. <laughs> so... Yeah, whether you have green or white or red, it's all it's almost all the same. <laughs> Still need to hit that turn three tron. Um what's what's awesome to me uh, in this whole tournament is uh it's not something new. I think it, it was likely on mode already, but we talked about it on the show last week with, with Andy and Alex and how Search for Escanta is making its uh finding its home in different type of blue decks. I hear it top eight it with Jeskai Breach. We're seeing some people put it in their blue-white control deck, uh, two copies. We see, like, I think, Grix's control by Corey Burkhart um, from Team Face Face Games. Uh, had, I actually asked, asked him to come on the show tonight, but uh, he's busy, so we're going to rain check on that. Um, and then some Jeskai control decks have adopted Searcher Escanta. Hmm. Are you excited for that card, Brian? <laughs> I think it's definitely good enough for modern. Um, you know, it's kind of a really sweet late game engine. Um, there already exists a few of those uh, in in modern control at the present, but I kind of look at it as as filling a role um, of inevitability without giving up so much in the early game. A card that used to be really good at that was like um, Eye of Ugin in the old blue white Tron decks. Where like they're just kind of eventually able to go over the top, and that's something that a lot of these control decks have been missing. So I found often when playing against Jeskai Control, uh, and I was usually playing something like on the mid ranges ish side, something like Jund or Grixis Death Shadow, is that they were good at hitting that like parity point in the mid game, but the door wasn't closed when you reached that point in the mid game. Like they had stabilized the board, but you could still hit a series of running draws that they were really vulnerable to. It wasn't like they had any way to build that inevitability into their deck. And I think Search for Asconta does a nice job of kind of bridging that gap between the mid to late game and still being functional in the early game, because they are reliant on finding specific spells in the early game. Uh, and this facilitates that. In, in Corey's list, it's also facilitating his Tassigers, um, his la- Logic Knots. So it, it's it's doing a bunch for him. And I think it's just going to be kind of a p- key piece of control going forward. I see more and more Search for Asconta making its way into control in Modern as time goes on. Hmm. The way you describe how good the card is in the mate to late game makes me, because I was really excited last week that maybe we're going to like see people that are playing two copies are likely just experimenting with it, not really sure, and that maybe we see like a more aggressive uh, take on the card to three or four, but maybe you're right. It's just something that they don't... Three or four is tough. It's just like it, it, it's not good in multiples really at any stage in the game. Granted, like it has some built-in protection in the fact that when one flips, you can keep the front side of the other one. Mm-hmm. But you you absolutely never want to draw more than two in the game. Okay. Um, and it's not like your deck ceases to function without it, so you don't have to push into the range of three or four. I think two is actually the sweet spot number. And, and I think even me being a big fan of the card, I'm not looking to push that number deeper. I mean, I could see some matchups where it's super key, like a, a mirror matchup potentially where... I, you always want to copy, so I could see a third copy in the sideboard possibly. But I, I think two is kind of a sweet spot for now for search, um, and, and probably where I would start with any kind of control list. Yeah, there's also like no dependency or reason to like have to play it in the early game, right? Yep. Like if you were playing four, 
you'd basically be saying, I need to play this spell up turn two. I, I can't function without this card. Exactly. Yeah, and it's just like, that's not the case. Like, you also have Seer Visions, Opt, Ancestral Visions, Sphinx of Revel, whatever. Uh, there's a whole bunch of cards to help you dig and find it when you need it. So I think playing it on turn six or seven is also just fine. I haven't seen, um, like, Grixis, Death Shatter, or anything like that kind of... Uh, look at this card. I wonder if that's something they would be interested in at some point, like maybe not in the main, but out of the board, they just get to flip it so quickly. They do, uh, but they're not great at playing that game. Like they, they really don't want to get into that kind of war that search for Ascanta, um points you to. Cause you, you do have so many bad top decks in the late game. It's kind of like you're looking to establish a really pronounced window in like that mid game turn five to turn seven, where you just like, get your way onto the board and close the game like that. And extending the game beyond that point is very difficult when you have a deck full of thought seizes and inquisitions and thought scouring. Like think about how much of your deck is air when you get to the late game. There's a huge portion. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. Um, that, that's fair. Maybe, so that maybe more really like, a Grixis con- like just a straight Grixis control shell or something. Exactly. And I, and I think that's probably why, you know, Corey found some success with it in his list. Um, he, he's not trying to do a lot of the same things. He is more equipped to play into the late game. You know, he's got, Four Colligan Command, four Snapcaster Mage, um, so and four Cryptic Command. So he's very equipped to just keep the game going long. The value um, train. <laughs> yeah, I mean he can he can kind of go forever, and you know Grixis Death Shadow doesn't carry that same um, late game resiliency. So I, I see the problem in Grixis Death Shadow. Um, I also think like Grixis Death Shadow is wearing a bit of a target right now. Like the metagame is a bit hostile to it, so that could be part of why. Uh, it's not really making any adoptions like that. It's just because the deck on the whole is not great right now. Um, but I really like the look of Corey's list. I, I would play some games with this list. I think he's doing some interesting stuff. He's not afraid to take chances. He knows the archetype very well. And I kind of see how this whole package is coming together now. There's some sideboard stuff I don't really agree with. But on the whole, I think his main deck is very well built and, and very interesting and could be a way forward for the format. Um, I guess if there's like one complaint I would levy against it is I would want some way to deal with problem lands. Um, you know, you look at a, a top eight filled with scape shift and Tron, it's like, oh, I should have some answers to this. And I think Field of Ruin might become the default answer in that spot. And he's not really equipped to play that card. He, he just can't. Um, so, you know, I, I think maybe a retooling... Um, I don't know how you get there. I don't know how you get this deck to a place. Like, I don't think blue-red control is really realistic, and blue-black is kind of a stretch, but closer than than blue-red, to be honest. I mean, what are we losing here? The Colligan's Command late game? That's a big deal. I mean, that's kind of his plan for going long. So I don't know. It's something I would tool around with. I think there's a lot of space for control in modern right now if it's built properly based on some new prints. So. Hmm. Sweet, sweet. I, I can't wait. I can't wait to try it. You, you're convincing me to try it. Uh, I don't know if you guys can comment on this, but one criticism I've had when from people uh, criticizing the deck that I played, my blue-white control deck that, that I just net-decked, was the presence of, of Wall of Omens. And I'm, I'm just quickly scanning through the blue-white control list um, of this the, the top 32, and they've basically trimmed it down to two or one. A, a lot of people just think it's kind of useless. Uh, what do you guys think? Look at the top eight and tell me what wall of omens yeah. is blocking. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> it's it's so first. easy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that like 
the blue white decks were all trimming wall of omens. I think that the blue white decks that trimmed wall of omens floated to the top, given how the the real top of this tournament looks. I mean, that's probably more likely what happened. I, I completely agree with Brian. Like, there's just, nothing to block. To block like a Sakura Tribelder once in a while. That's literally <laughs> it. There's just nothing out there. Um, you know, against Dredge, maybe can block a Blood Gas once in a while. But on the whole, the Wall of Omens is not a great magic card for modern, I don't believe. I mean, you, you'd want a top eight that's filled with, like, Burn and Jund or something, and then it's like, okay, it's not not terrible. Is it point. even good against, like, do you Death Shadow for the, just the one block, I guess? No. no <laughs> exactly. I, I, don't, I just don't think it's great. Like, I, I've played Wall of Omens in Modern before in kind of, like, the, um, the Jeskai Splinter Twin decks where, like, there's a ton of value plays, and, like, Splinter Twin on a Wall of Omens was just fine in a lot of spots, and Kiki Jiki on your Wall of Omens, and Restoration Angels. When you're in those kind of packages, the card starts to make some sense, but just, like, as a value card... That's a really mopey card for modern. It's it's just not doing enough to play it fair. Yeah, this meta game is all about ignoring your opponent and trying to basically go off whatever your going off is on turn three. And like, if you're the blue deck tapping on turn two to play Wall of Omens, uh, you're gonna get slapped. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys would cut it off if you were playing picking on blue white. I think so. Yeah, I don't think I would. I don't think I would play it. I, I think the opportunity cost is for 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 your turn two. Or, or even like your turn four. It's just like not what I want to be doing at any stage of the game, given how the current meta looks like. Like if we start seeing a bunch of, uh, you know, aggro decks or, or like mid-range attack with creatures, but like, you know, those, those kind of decks come back. Sure, it, it makes sense. It's, it's reasonable, right? You have time to do that. But I'm not playing Wall of Omens and then getting Karn next turn. <laughs> That's not a winning strategy. I'm, I'm trying to find an alternative because... Um, like my friends were, were suggesting, think twice, but that might be too slow. It's probably the other two th- Snapcaster mages. <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> I've seen uh, one guy who finished, David Tardif, uh, finished 30th and, and played one copy of Rune Halo. And it's cool to see, like, because I didn't, I didn't play this card. I'm not sure it was in the format and during that PPTQ, but uh, the guy who finished 30th had four Field of Ruin. So, and like playing a two color control deck allows you to play uh, that card that Brian just mentioned. So. Yeah, I've seen that a lot online this week. Uh, Field of Ruin is very, very popular. And for like the first 20 matches, I thought it could hit my basics, <laughs> but it can't. <laughs> so straight up replaces uh, most of your Ghost Quarters, I guess? It, it's more like if you were going to play Tectonic Edge, I think. Okay, Tectonic Edge. Yeah. I'm seeing, okay, so this guy has like one Ghost Quarter, four Field of Ruin, three Field of Ruin. Uh, with one tectonic edge, so so they're shaving a lot, like of one or the other. Seems like so far that's the approach uh, that people are taking to be able to fit feel the ruin in their deck. Alrighty, okay, it's it's good, it's very good in the control deck for sure. I haven't played it on my side, but witnessing it being played against me, it's it's very good. They get they get to like deal with your problem lands while not losing out on their their uh, their mana, so they don't lose any tempo basically. So. It, it it is nice. Alrighty, let's go straight to a first strike nation question. Um, brought to brought to us by one of our members, who said uh, one of our thoughts on a popper Grand Prix or open uh, CFB and SCG seem to be considering it. I haven't read that, but uh, just a quick definition of what popper is. I just blow it up the MTG uh, website in this Magic Online format. All cards 
must have been printed at Common Rarity in a Magic Online set or product. Common promo cards are only illegal if the card meets that qualification. If a common version of a particular card was ever released on Magic Online, any version of that card is legal in this format. Okay. Um, other than that, the usual rules for constructed decks apply. 60 cards, up to 15 in your sideboard, and no more than four of any individual card in your main deck sideboard combined. Uh, Rob, have you actually been hearing any rumblings about this? Uh, I mean, I saw some Twitter people going off about how, oh, why hasn't anyone considered playing a popper or having a popper GP or something stupid like that? Uh, I can tell you why. It's because no one plays the format in real life. It's popular online, and it's popular online because it's cheap. So, I don't know. I just... (laughs) I I don't think it has the, the base. Maybe you could get away with one event uh, a year, but like most of the people playing are like who even knows where they are, right? Because they're playing online. So it's not like some section of the US is really like into Popper, and then you can just like plop the event in the middle of that and they'll all be able to get there. Like the Popper community could be like literally just spread flat across the world, and then you pick a location for it, and people are like, I'm not flying across. <laughs> you know seven hours to go play at some stupid popper gp so uh i don't think it's going to happen i can see scg doing uh like um a sunday event that just accompanies one of their tournaments just to see what happens and i'm sure the first one will be it'll make it look real promising (laughs) you don't seem that excited you don't seem that it'll fall it'll fall real quickly after that (laughs) it's just not a great it's not a great format you know you don't think it's a good format? No, I I, I tried to get into Popper before, and it's it's yeah, it's stupid. <laughs> you know, when people I, I can already feel it, like people who who criticize Frontier, right? Like, oh, you're just trying to raise the prices of all. Yeah, these- my my, for, my format ranking order goes um, Frontier, and then Commander, <laughs> and then Popper. <laughs> In terms of what the worst format, the worst that's starting from the worst top down, yeah. <laughs> Frontier Commander Popper. So we're so Popper is the least. Uh, no, no, no. Frontier is the worst for sure. Okay. Frontier is the worst. Popper okay. is almost as as bad as Commander. All right, you're you're not giving that a shot at all, Brian. Are you more <laughs> positive about this? I'm like super positive about it. Like the funny thing is, I don't disagree with anything Rob said. I think Popper is a pretty bad format. Um, on the whole, I think that the player base is probably fractured and. It's not a long-term sustainable format, but I miss these like weirdo one-off GPs. Like I miss block constructed. Block constructed many times was not a good format, but it's nice having just different stuff to prepare for. I want to prepare for a new format, explore a new format, and it's nice that Popper is cheap enough that a bunch of people could take on exploration of that format, and it's super undeveloped. Like the top minds of the game have never really turned their attention to Popper. Um, so there could be some really cool stuff kind of, you know, lurking just below the surface. I'm like, for for a one-off GP, which obviously there's a diehard community of Popper as well who would be really excited about it and, like, get their moment in the sun and get to play their format, I, I think it's a great idea. It would be a tremendous amount of interest. Again, one time. I, I'm not saying, like, shift the main competitive focus of Magic to Popper. That would be a disaster. But as a one-time event, I think it's a really cool idea and something fun. Like, I, I think the OP section of Wizards has kind of been afraid to take chances for a little while now. 
and they don't like doing weird stuff. And, you know, it's just straight standard sealed, modern standard sealed, modern legacy standard sealed over and over and over. And like, especially with the sealed format being so poor right now, uh, I mean, if this GP coming up this weekend was pauper as opposed to Exelon sealed, I'd be 10 times more excited. Like it's not even close. Um, you know, that's not saying that I'm a pauper fan or like, it, it's just something different, something new to do, uh, better than playing more Exelon limited. So yeah, I like this idea. I, I think it's fun. I think it's different. Um, the thing is it has to be done in moderation. It'd go really good on one of the, like the big weekends, like the Seattle, Las Vegas weekends with multiple GPs. It'd be a really nice fit in one of those, I think to kind of just be a, something different. Um, I, I hope we see this. I, I don't know if we're going to. If you're asking me to evaluate its likelihood, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's some complications and difference between the card pool in real life and online and knowing exactly what's legal. And, and that stuff is a little murky, but um, obviously that's addressable. I guess I'd put the odds of it happening at like 40% is where I'm guessing right now. But it has my support, has my vote. I hope it happens. Not anytime soon, but maybe in the next like three years or so, we could see one pauper GP. I hope that I hope that Brian's correct, and I hope that Watsi tests this theory out by replacing the modern Pro Tour with a pauper Pro Tour at the last second. But uh, this is if they do it like that then sure <laughs> that is. <laughs> but they used to do crazy things like that all the time. I remember my first ever Pro Tour. It was Pro Tour Amsterdam in 2010. Me too. Me too. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. Um, so if you'll remember this then. Yeah. The Double standard format, or whatever they called it. Yeah, but the format was not slated to be that extended. It was slated to be old extended going back to like, you know, I don't remember what the legality was, but it was, it was a much broader old extended format. And then something, it was with some notice, probably like two or three months notice. It but, was, I don't know if it was that. I think it was only like a month or six weeks okay, or something. It, it could be it less than that. Yeah. I, I know that I had started testing for the Pro Tour under the assumption that it was going to be the other format. Right. I, I definitely had <laughs> yeah. gone that far um, and then found out we were playing a totally different format at the Pro Tour. And part of that was like I was super excited, so I was way ahead of schedule and just like testing too early. Um, but... I mean, they used to do much more risky things when it came to kind of like OP and, you know, taking chances like that. Um, do it again. I mean, what's the harm? What's the harm from making one, one pauper GP? I, I, I'm not saying replace the modern pro tour with pauper. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, it would be interesting though. I'll, I'll just say that. Anytime you can like test out an, un, an undefined format, it's fun as a deck builder. It's fun as a player. And I think it's fun for like spectators because they get to, you know, look at the top eight list and, oh, what happened? You know, I remember, I don't think there'll ever be as an exciting event. And it turned out to be an absolute like shit show. But the first modern pro tour, which was completely dominated by like the most broken decks possible, that was a super exciting event. Like nobody knew what was going to happen going into that. And I think that's fun for a pro tour. Um, And that's kind of like, that's why everything moved to standard, right? So everything was always new and exciting. But, like, there's some other ways to make things new and exciting, especially where, um, you know, standard has kind of been defined by very powerful blocks and things haven't been changing a huge amount from uh, Pro Tour to Pro Tour, with the exception of something like, um, you know, Kaladesh, which kind of has now irrevocably warped the format for what's going on a couple of years now. It's an artifact block. I mean, we knew it was happening. Yeah, it always happens. It's just a matter of time. 
Um, but yeah, I, I'm on board with this idea. I'll support my my popper brothers and sisters in in lobbying for this just to do something different and fun. I hope it's not a GP. Just like make some other sort of casual magic event and have it there. I don't think it should queue for the pro tour. That's all. <laughs> it's like it's like if they had a commander GP and you queued for the pro tour. I just wouldn't feel good about that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, right. is that is that any worse than queuing for the Pro Tour from like Avacyn Restored Limited? Like, there are bad formats from time to time, or playing in like I don't know. I'm trying to think of a really degenerate standard format, or like Skull Clamp Affinity. If you qualified for the Pro Tour back in those days, like, there's been bad formats. If this is just like a goofy format, so be it. I mean, people have there's Pro Tour champions. Jacob Van Loon is a Pro Tour champion because he played two headed giant at the Pro Tour, <laughs> like. Yeah, weird things have happened, and <laughs> I, I liked it. It was more exciting back then as opposed to this kind of like homogenous approach that we have now. So I, I agree with you that it would be uh at the very least exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, let's we're gonna go back and forth here. Uh, another questions at us at first strike pod on twitter so make sure you follow that account um if you want to ask us questions on twitter or uh check the latest updates that we have um hey guys i'd love to hear a topic about how to decide what opening hands to keep and how one arrives at those decisions i see cfb or watsi has keeper mall on their cast and i never seem to match up with the answer they give help um i don't think we're gonna do like a, a full extensive module or show on this but uh, what I'd like to ask you, Rob, like maybe uh, a quick one would be what's maybe a common mistake you, you've seen people do? Like for me, I think uh, before I, I hand it to you, I've compared how I am elegant to, to some of my friends sometimes. And I do think I am a little on the looser side when there's like at least, you know, two lands. And though the, the hand doesn't play maybe as optimally i just feel like the average six is worse so i definitely feel like i tend to keep any like reasonable two or three land four lander hand type thing um many thoughts oh rob yes i probably should have wrote this out so i don't forget anything but uh the first point is that your average six is almost always better than what you think it will be in your head. <laughs> like people's estimation of what their average six card hand is, is like miserable. Like always like, Oh, if I get a one lander, if I get a five lander, like what am I going to do? It's like, you know, you're very unlikely to hit those scenarios. Although they happen and then you just mold the five. Right. Um, so I think that's an important thing to get over. <laughs> Believe in your average six. It's usually, uh, it's usually fine. And then in terms of uh, deciding to keep her mole, um, I see this a lot, and people will keep uh, hands that even it... So the hand doesn't have what it needs, but even if it gets there, it's not like a guarantee to win. So I'm fine taking a risk, right? Like if I have... Uh, I'm playing Jund, and I have like Goif, Goif, uh, Overgrown Tomb, uh, Thoughtseize, Thoughtseize, Thoughtseize some other random card, right? It's like, okay, if I draw a land, um, my Goyce are likely going to be huge because I have a mitt full of Thought Seizes. My opponent probably can't do anything interesting because I can rip their hand apart. And I'm, you know, very likely to draw a land within the first two or three turns. So I'll be able to play these like four or five or five, six Goyce. And that should be, you know, reasonable. 
for me to like, you know, try and do something useful with, right? Like your, your ghosts are probably blanking all of their creatures. You just need to strip them of their removal, draw a land. And if you get there, you have a good chance of winning, but they'll keep like three thoughtsies overgrown tomb. And it's like scavenging ooze, um, Liliana, and then Coligan's command or something, right? It's like, this hand doesn't get there. If you get a land, you play scavenging goose, nobody cares. (laughs) And then you need to draw another land before like the rest of your hand is turned on. And I don't know if that was a, that was a great example, but those are the kind of things I see people do a lot. It's difficult to like, just kind of talk about it out of of context. But Mm -hmm. if you, if you get there, the first get there and you don't think you're like very favored to win, likely you should be, you should be mulliganing. And and that changes a lot based on the matchup and what you're, what you're playing against and the format you're playing in. Because I'm like a lot less likely to mulligan land light hands against Jund than I am against Burn or whatever, right? Um, but uh, that's kind of like my my baseline, uh, anyways. Brian probably has some interesting thoughts as well. Well, I think it's I think it's a really hard topic. Like you said, you could do an entire show on it, and it's difficult to kind of sum up mulliganing in kind of uh, a brief um, flow of thoughts here. But I will say that I don't think people's estimation of the quality of sixes has adjusted to the new mulligan rule. The fact that you get to scry means sixes are so much better. Um, there's a lot of cases where, like, there, I do believe that there are theoretical decks where, like, six plus scry is just as good and maybe in like post sideboard games better than seven. I think that's totally plausible. Um, I don't have like an example. Um, I think it would be a very extreme example, but it's still plausible. Um, so updating your kind of internal monologue, like what you're talking about, KYT, how you, you, you tend to keep a little bit too much. Um, make sure you've addressed it to the scry because the scry is very powerful, especially in certain decks. Um, the other thing I would say is just kind of a blanket rule is that when you're making a decision as to whether you're keeping a hand, I think people don't construct the first X turns of the game very often. Like they don't actually, it's very easy when you're looking at a seven to think of your theoretical draws and sculpt out how the game plays if you hit those draws and what the percentage of those draws are. So if you have like five lands, two discard spells, and you're debating whether to keep that in game one, and you know your deck is like 22 Goyf-esque creatures, well, that becomes a pretty easy key. Um, In other circumstances where you're like two lands, a bunch of your high-end spells, and you're playing a control deck where you're absolutely incentivized to hit all of your land drops and you don't have any kind of card filtering or anything, well, that's a pretty easy mulligan because based on what's in your deck, it's just not really possible for the, those hands to come together. Like you're basically asking your deck at that point to kind of rip three lands off the top. You need to hit your five mana spots. So you're able to do those big, powerful control deck things. So sculpt out the first few turns of your game. Think about turns one through five. Think about what you're planning to do on those turns. Think about what the games you win with your deck look like. And is your hand likely to mold into those type of hands you know what teamer hands look like that win the game and run over your opponent so when you're looking at that seven think about you know what draws need to come into this hand where i have that teamer draw where i just flow into glory bringer and there's nothing that they can do whatsoever 
Um, I think if you're honest with yourself about constructing those scenarios and thinking about your percentages of hits, um, mulliganing becomes much easier. And maybe I'm oversimplifying as someone who has like a good base already. Like I know how to forecast games out in advance. And maybe that's a very difficult thing for kind of a burgeoning player to do. It's hard for me to put myself in those shoes. And don't get me wrong. I still make mulligan mulligan mistakes all the time. And, you know, I'll go back and talk with people afterwards and they'll be like, oh, I would have never kept that. Um, So I think there's always room for debate. There's always room even for better players to make mistakes. And the kind of easiest advice I can give is just do more to sculpt out your turns. I think a lot of times your mulliganing decision is the hardest actual decision you'll face in an entire game. Um, Because there's a lot of games of magic that will, many turns are basically dictated by what you have in hand. And then there's key decision points, and that's where games are won or lost. Well, a key decision point that comes up in every single game is, am I keeping or mulliganing? And if you work on this part of your game, I think you can do a lot to improve your results. Hmm. Good advice. Do you ever, like, Rob, do you ever find yourself, like, being too aggressive, though? Like, we always talk about people not mulliganing enough, but have you seen yourself or other uh, players that, that you play with or, or mentored just go way too overboard? Gerard Fabiano. <laughs> is is he aggressive? He, no, he hates mulliganing. He, oh, he's he, aggressively he, not mulliganing. Yeah, like some crazy <laughs> keeps. And Gerard Ger- yeah, is a, a really interesting guy to talk magic with because he he thinks about things very differently from other people, and obviously has a ton of success. And uh, you know, a a really a really interesting mind for the game. But he does things differently, and you kind of it's, it's very difficult to talk him out of his uh, predilections. And he's a staunch anti-mulliganer. He, he wants seven in his hand. I, don't, I haven't really played with him much since the mulligan rule was updated. I don't know if he's kind of softened his stance at, at all, but he's big on keeping seven. Spicy. I mean, I guess sometimes you got to give yourself the chance to get lucky. Card, card advantage. Card advantage is king. <laughs> so in terms of uh, like seeing people mulligan too aggressively... It's it's funny. Like I, I think that uh, it's very rare that people would do it uh, when no one's looking. You're more likely to keep a loose <laughs> hand if no one's looking than to mulligan too aggressively. I have found that like for the for the local people that like come to me for like advice on a regular basis and stuff like that. When um, I'm standing behind them watching a game, like either F and M or at a GP or or PVDQ or, or whatever, um, and, and they know that I'm kind of like you know, analyzing their play to give them feedback after the match or whatever. I've noticed that they are definitely mulliganing more aggressively than they should on average. Cause like you can see the gears turn in their head where they're like, Oh no, would Rob Mulligan this? Uh, he probably would. Oh, he's going <laughs> to yell at me after this and then they'll just do it. Or like if, if the same things like when they, they're drafting and they, they know I'm like kind of just hanging around the store, like not not really in, in the tournament. Um, and, and they know I'm like kind of looking at their picks. They'll make like the most absurd picks sometimes, um, just like you know, kind of like talking themselves into something and then out of it and then into something crazy. It's like, no, it's got to be this. It's like, man, you overthought <laughs> too much. But uh, yeah, when no, when people are not watching, I, I think they're you're you're much more likely to be loose than aggressive. Yeah, I mean, given. For for me, I have seen people mulligan hands that 
I do think we're they weren't sketchy. Like they were certainly on the on the playable side. So um yeah, hope hope that helps. Uh maybe we'll do something more extensive uh discussion in the future if, if there is interest. But I think these guys uh, brought up a few good points. Um there's been uh, Sergio. I think he's heading to perhaps GB New Jersey. Oh, wait, uh, Rob, before, you, before, Go ahead. before you cut over, I guess uh, for anyone who's interested in, in mulliganing stuff, if you have some a hand that's interesting or like you see something on, on CFB or some other site and you're like, I disagreed with their logic and you want to like just tweet that at us, uh, go ahead and do that and we can have a Twitter chat. I mean, don't be, uh, don't be afraid to do that. I, I love getting in Twitter banter. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off, Sergio. I'm sure you're... Okay, uh, she's going to talk about something great you did. Are you, are you going to GP New Jersey after all to try to queue? No, I, I have an early Christmas dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, I was really definitely um, targeting New Jersey as a way to queue because Doug can't play, right? But it looks like Kyle Bogomis already replaced me, so there's really no point in really rushing the, the qualifications. So I'm just going to do an early Christmas and, and, and chill out for the break. Um, I'm just that also sucks. But have you been practicing though? Sergio wanted Sergio wanted or our good friend Sergio Ferry wanted to know if there's any last minute advice. Even though the format's considered solved, everyone's just like synergy, synergy, synergy. Is there any extra useful tidbit? So I, I don't really. I mean, obviously, you need to build your pool well, right? Like, you want to give yourself the best chance to win. I just I, I played quite a bit of this sealed, and I feel like this sealed more than a lot of others in the past, your chance to win is already heavily dictated by your pool and the way it synergizes with itself. Like, I've had pools where all of my black cards are vampires and all of my white cards are something like dinosaurs. And it's like, okay, I can build this deck. Like, it's fine. It's the best deck in my pool, but it's not great. Like, if I get lucky in the first three or four rounds, I can win. But once you start getting to round five and six when you're playing against guys that open, like, two register alphas and, and stuff like that. You're just dead. <laughs> you can never beat them. And uh, yeah, that's been my experience every time. I've had some bonkers pools and those pools all, you know, usually do very well. And uh, every pool I've had that isn't like very good, it is extremely difficult to compete with the decks at the XO table uh, late in the tournament. I don't know, Brian, if, if you've played it all and you have some thoughts on it, but this format has just been atrocious, and I'm actually kind of thankful that I'm not going to New Jersey, to be fair. No, I'm, I'm actually super confident for New Jersey. I have, I feel like I've completely broken the oh. format. And what I'm going to do, this is my plan, I, I think in <laughs> both sealed and draft, is that I'm going to get so lucky that <laughs> is going to be blown. Like, I'm talking, like, maybe three register alphas. Like, just really, really push the envelope. And I'm just going to ride that to victory. And I, I don't really think there's any way to counteract that strategy. I really feel like I've solved this format. Um, and I'm looking Have you figured out mana screw? Because that can still get you, Brian. No, that's part of luck. Like, when I tell you I'm going to get really lucky, like, it's ten, going to ten be... on all the metrics, yeah, right? Yeah, like, I'm covering all always the Always have the right mana, the right colors, the right exactly. turns. Exactly. I will be lucky in my seal pool. I will be lucky in games. I'll be lucky, you know, when I go out for breakfast, I'll get a great breakfast. It's just top-to-bottom luck. When your opponents and, have better pools, they'll play bad or, yeah. or get screwed. It's just yeah, I've all covered all my bases. Yeah, I, I've thought of everything. So Strategy. I'm really excited for the GP and think that I, I'm just looking forward to applying this strategy. Like I've never really done it before. 
So it's, it's a new approach <laughs> so for me. <laughs> and we'll see how it goes. I think it's going to work out well, though. So I, I can speak from experience. Um, in the second real PTQ that I won, I did get lucky like that before, where not only was I playing reasonably well, my opponents were playing bad, and my pool was completely bonkers. Um, I saw the guy open it because it was like where you sit close to each other and, and you, they pass and register, right? It was Innistrad sealed. And I had, because uh, of the flip cards, I had nine rares and they were all in green white. And I had three travel preps. I had Garrick. I had it all. I had it all. And the guy's like, when he opened the pool, he just laid out the rares. He's like, I don't see how anyone can lose a match with this game. <laughs> I was like, please come to me. Please come to me. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I don't think I dropped a game. Actually, it was a savage pool. So, anyways, just speaking from experience, it can be done. I hope it happens to you. <laughs> I actually asked my friend uh, Travis Sowers, who uh, does videos for Mad Deprived, about his opinion. Who, who streams almost daily and told me he had actually a seventy percent win rate in Exelon drafts, which is pretty sweet. So, he's got. Just for you, Sergio, I, I hope this helps. I don't know if Rob agrees or, or Brian agrees with this stuff, but for, for his sealed approach, he's got three rules. One, look for a synergy deck, good vampires, good merfolk, or whatnot. 10% of the time, you're going to have something like that. So get lucky. Okay, next one. <laughs> Two, look for good. If you don't have that, look for blue-green fixing. Um, have a crap ton of Sailor of Means or uh, New Horizons. Play all the colors. Play the good cards. Sounds like you got lucky there. All right, let's hear the next one. 15%. Uh, you're probably going to have that. And the last one, if you have none of those, play the best two colors you have, good cards in. Keeping in mind, the format's mostly 3-3s, three so anything bigger is great. Um, oh, so that one is just scoop. Go yeah. home. Yeah, that sounds suspiciously <laughs> unlucky, and I'm not interested in that advice. I'm going to apply one and two. Sorry, Travis. Um, but three's not doing it for me. For draft? He mentioned take for his first four picks, he'll take the best card. Um, like he mentioned, ignoring color, ignoring what you've picked. Pick five, you should see what's open. Fifth pick, boom, your Merfolk. Uh, fifth pick, Deacon, your Vamps, and flush your f- first four picks if you gotta, and that if you have to. And that's his approach, very synergy, and, and seeing which uh, synergy archetype is open and jumping completely into that. And that has led to a 70% win rate in the modal queues. And, you know, I hope that advice helps you, Sergio. Uh, Brian? That's actually, that's really good advice, for real. Like, I, I, that's been my approach to Exelon as well. And, and when I find success, it's from staying open fairly late. And, you, I mean, you need to get into those. So we're talking about, like, synergy being the key, right? And when it comes to sealed, it is about luck. Like, did I get that synergistic pool? But you do have some agency when it comes to draft, and you're able to kind of finagle things to get into um a a synergistic place i will say that applying that strategy also requires you to know how to bail yourself out when things go bad so you kind of need to know how to cobble something together and how to lean on some cheese if you have to to get through um you know if if you blow uh what's supposed to be a really synergistic draft by not getting the key cards you have to look for the cheap wins you have to look for other strategies that could possibly work so um, this is a high skill cap piece of advice and requires some knowledge of the format, but it's a very good piece of advice. Sweet, sweet. Um, anything else, Rob, as we wrap up this section and go for our last topic? Yeah, it's actually something that uh, Brian and Jerry brought up on, on GAM uh, last week, and I was thinking about it. I feel like 
And Jerry kind of contradicted this, <laughs> that Watsy does care about sealed, but I feel like in their design, they heavily favor a reasonable draft format um, over any reasonable sealed. And I wonder if sealed, uh, it's time for it to kind of like be taken out to pasture and us to move on to something else that is, um, that still works in an environment where you can have interesting, fun, synergistic draft formats. Because sealed almost never works in a reasonable way um, in, in those kind of draft formats. So I don't know. It, it is like the popular day one GP format, but I wonder if it's time to just like cut it or figure something else out that is uh, more appropriate. I spent like two hours last week trying to figure out uh, draft GPs, how to make them work. And I didn't, but I, I think I was close. And I think there, there is a theoretical way to make it work. I mean, basically my first pass leaned really hard on just doing two drafts on day one, two drafts on day two, eliminating all buys and getting to a reasonable point there. The numbers didn't quite work out. I don't know if you remember, Rob, but I was, I was bothering you about where to find the Swiss triangle online, but it was basically oh. based on <laughs> trying to figure out a theoretical GP format that would have supported and all drafts. Because if you think about it from a product perspective, the product is exactly the same. And I think just um, two drafts, two drafts across both days from a time perspective may even be better than sealed. Even acknowledging all the logistics trouble that comes in with um, you know, running two drafts, I, I think it works a little bit better. And the question is, how do you draw uh, a cut line? And the only version I kind of got to work was where you cut for day two at 5-1. Yeah, that's think, what I was going to ask you, actually, if you tested that. Yeah, I think it's just really feel bad. Like, I don't think you'll ever see them. You, you can't ask people to fly across the country and know in the first two rounds that you're out of the GP. Right? <laughs> like, that's, that's just problematic. And not even, like, you're, you can't really win anymore. You can't even get to play day two. What, what, if, they, what if they just run two GPs, right? Because you have nine rounds of space available on day one. So basically, you start a GP in round one. And then you start another GP in round four. So you could so re-enter like, if you like scrub in the first GP. <laughs> yeah, and then on day yeah, actually, that's it. If you're if you're X one at the end of either of those two day ones, then mm-hmm. you go into uh, you go into day day two. It's close. I mean, maybe that works because like you're kind of like I mean you're you're stealing more money from people, right? But maybe their second buy-in is less, like fifty percent or sixty percent of a normal buy-in. So like you buy in at a hundred bucks. I'm talking Canadian prices here, and then uh, like if you if you think like you went one two or oh three, or like you don't think you have good chances at two one, you can just like drop and enter the next one at fifty dollars. <laughs> And then yeah. everyone at X one. I, I, I think that's close. I saw also Austin just posted in in the chat about um, draft leagues. I would riot before I would play draft leagues at a GP. There's zero Free chance. For I do all. That. No, <laughs> no chance. That is not draft. That has no place at a GP. Um, <laughs> I know. I know what you're saying, Austin. Like, obviously, I consider that idea as, as well, and it is logistically a very good idea. You're right that that is a nice approach, but that's not draft and not what I want to be doing at a GP and kind of, um, you know, I would rather just keep the current system than switch to that kind of approach. That's me personally. I mean, other people might be into the draft league idea, but I do think there's a way to make it work. And again, this goes back to like taking risks, try more stuff. Like we're in a place where I think trying more stuff is a fine approach. And I I don't want to play sealed GPs anymore. I, I really hate them, but I love GPs so much. I keep going. 
<laughs> was, I, wow, I, I agree. I used to love Sealed, though. But anyways, we can move on. We, that, we that, was a, such a, this was, that was a killer, killer content. <clears throat> Speaking of stealing money, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what a scumbag. <laughs> I have to bring back John Manita to, to finish this last topic. I uh, didn't have a chance to have you and Rob duke it out, which is what I want to see. Um, oh, no. Rob is going to duke it out with me? Well, Girl, I'm gonna lose. I, I was I'm one of the lose. first hashtag more Medina supporters. He was, <laughs> he was, a, he was an A team listener, uh, an enthusiastic one. Like Rob listened to more episodes than I than I thought. I, I'm a first strike listener. I don't even play Magic that much. So <laughs> I, I'm a commuter car. I, I get my fair share of podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> so our, our last questions come courtesy uh, from First Strike Nation Facebook group from Chantal Campbell. Shoutouts to her um, at C Tal Campbell. And you can check out her new podcast at Combatants MTG at Combatants MTG. Um, that is a sweet new cast. So with all girls on it. So make sure you check that out and support that. Um, here, her question in the chat uh, in the group was uh, thoughts on how Unstable's success will affect future Magic unsets and revenue. Plans and first of all, this assumes that it's successful, which I think Rob is gonna shake his head at. But Rob <laughs> Anderson, my colleague at FaceToFaceGames.com, has said that he had ordered a small amount of stable for the store, thinking it would not be popular. But people are going absolutely bananas for it, and he has ordered quote, at least four times unquote. what I started with. Bananas. <laughs> he did not Hashtag bananas. absolutely bananas. <laughs> he did actually say those words, but. <laughs> but John, did it surprise you because you were so pro unstable? Uh, so did it surprise me uh, the success of it? Uh, well, first of all, let's let, let's let's be honest. It was successful, so I don't know if Rob is saying it wasn't successful. But like even Evan Irwin, right? He's talking here. He tweeted about Cool Stuff Inc. He works at Cool Stuff Inc. He says the past two weeks, unstable booster boxes are the sixth best-selling magic product on CoolStuffInc.com. You know what the first five are? The basic lands from Unstabled. So we have five basic lands from Unstable and booster boxes. Those are the top six magic products on CoolStuffInc.com. Um, and this is, this is like anecdotal, right? But there's so much of this kind of uh, success evidence that I think it was, it was a success financially for Wizards of the Coast to produce it. So the question is, because of its success, what 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 is what does that mean for future sets or for this set or what's the question specifically? Is the question uh, is the question about this set or another? How unsets? affect f- future Magic unsets and revenue plans? Okay, so uh, this is something Mark Rosewater talked about. He said one of the reasons the other unstable sets were not successful uh, or not as successful as they wanted them to be and why they had to fight so hard to get a number three was because they were marketing the sets wrong. So uh, they had no format to market unstable sets and they had no really way to, no formula to put it in. So what they did is they marketed it as a regular set. That's what they did for um, Unglued and Unhinged. And those were not commercially as successful. Um, So what happened in the meantime, while they were developing this third set, and they were doing it in a kind of a covert way, um, they weren't really just straight out saying, we're going to make a third unset. They were just kind of doing it, and then they were going to present it later. So what, what happened in the middle there was Conspiracy released. And Conspiracy, they market that differently than a regular set. 
And so what they did is for the unstable release, they used the conspiracy formula uh, for marketing it, and they really built it to be uh, a strong draft format. And, uh, and they built it with other formats in mind, like Cube, EDH, and stuff like that. And so, um, so that's why part of the reason why it's successful is because, because of those reasons. So what I would say is what this does, it just confirms their strategy to use those small set like conspiracy release cycles to use that kind of uh, that kind of data to go forward. Will there be another unset? I think after this one, yes, because of the commercial success, I think for sure. Also, there's so many people playing the the set who there's so many people who care about it who never cared about silver border sets, right? Absolutely bananas. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag absolutely bananas. So what what do you guys think? I'd like to hear your, your, I don't like talking too much, you know, as much Rob, as that. Yeah. Rob, Rob, let's, let's, let's hear it. <laughs> I, I think it should be absolutely nuts to keep in theme with unstable, right? It's a squirrel. If we get the nuts and the banana, we can make a banana, you know, a banana split, right? We just put some ice cream on there. And... <laughs> That'll be the, the next set. So, okay. Uh, I, I don't uh, have any uh, disagreement that, this release was successful for <laughs> for like one of these um, low print run supplementary products, right? Like they printed it as much as Conspiracy One or or like adjusted for like player growth or or uh, loss, <laughs> whatever it may be. Uh, since that was printed, probably um, and it probably has similar print runs to like the Master sets and other stuff like that. Okay, cool. So yeah, it, people are interested in it and, and it sold out. Um, it just reminds me exactly what happened when they printed Conspiracy, where they're like, you know, we printed this thing. It's kind of cool. Like, it's like a multiplayer format that plays with how you draft, and it changes the mechanics of drafting, and it's kind of interesting. And everyone's like, oh, my God, like, I've never seen something like this before. This is really awesome. And Conspiracy 1 sold, like, really well, much better than expectations. So what did they do? Man, Conspiracy 1 was a hit. Let's bring Conspiracy 2, like, Soon. I think they printed it like two years later, right? And what did Conspiracy do to do? It did nothing. It sucked. <laughs> no one cared about it because it's not different the second time around. So this one is different. It's a different experience and it's a gimmick and it's cool like once a player base. But they can't release this product every year. I would be very surprised if they could support it every two years. Um, and I think it would be just fine for them to have it on a, on their roster like every five years or so. Like I think they waited probably a few years too long uh, for this one. I don't know when Unglued came out, but I think it was like ten or fifteen years ago or something like that. So it was like quite a pent up demand for people that wanted this product. So if this product didn't do well, that would definitely tell you that no one cares about it at all, and that would be a nail in its coffin, and you'd know for sure that you should never do it again. If this product does very well, I'm not sure that it tells you too much other than um, there was enough demand out there already pent up over 15 years that it's sold okay, <laughs> uh, better better than you'd expect, which is not really surprising given you know how many people were kind of like waiting for this or whatever, right? But if they... I, oh man, I just I fear them printing another one next year or the year after, and it's just it's going to be bad. Like these people don't even know um, the ramifications of like you spent all this money and you had some fun, and now 
you're used to like your cards being worth something and being able to play with them later. And these cards are just like, you can't play them in any format and they're worthless other than Lance. So, you know, that hasn't really sunk in to the player base yet. They're, they're new to that part of, of unsets. So it'll be interesting to see how it evolves, I guess, but uh, I hope that it does not change their strategy for printing. <laughs> I, I think that like, it's a little bit unfair for you to be to say like, oh, it's sold okay. When this is like the top product on CoolStuffInc.com, where are the Ixalan boxes? Where are the other stuff that's supposed to be the from the vault? Where's all these other products? When this this product is selling, it it, it did more than sell okay. It, oh, I'd, Medina, I hope it's yeah. selling now. It just came yeah. out. It <laughs> came out two months ago. Like, is it selling better than Ixalan did when it released? If that's the case, like, if that's a true argument then I'll retract my statement. It probably, maybe they should do one every year. I would be very surprised if it sells better than a standard legal set on its well, release weekend than, than on standard release. That, like, I, release I think that was, okay, that was a mistake on my part because maybe I shouldn't have compared it to Ixalan because it's not an Ixalan product. That's what I just got done saying, right? It's like a conspiracy product. And so I guess the thing I take, not offense to, but the thing I take issue with is the way that you say it, right? You say it like, oh, it sold okay, just to kind of support your narrative, because you feel like this set is, you maybe don't have like high opinions of the set or whatever. Um, But I think we just, you just got to be honest, you know, it's it's selling really well for what it is. And uh, I don't think they should make one every year. I don't think there's space for that. Um, But, but, you know, I don't think that your um, arguments are compelling as to why uh, it why Conspiracy Two didn't sell well, like did it not sell well because it was not a great set, or did it not sell well because it was of product saturation? You know, because I think Conspiracy Two when did that release? That released in between some other products, right? It was like this summer, sometime I think, or last summer. I yeah, think. It, I mean, I it was so irrelevant that I forget even what year it was released in. Okay, exactly, and this is kind of like what happened with Iconic Masters, where they release it in the middle of all this stuff, and nobody cares about it. And I think that's a little bit what happened with um, Conspiracy Two. I, I think I think Modern Masters Three or something was coming out, like either came out like right before, or right after it, and people were just like just ran past it or, you know, didn't, didn't care about it. So yeah, I don't think they should print every year. I agree with you on that, but I, I think they'll, I think we'll see another one. It, it'll have much of the, the same um, sensibilities. Uh, we'll see world building in it, just like they did with this one. We'll see the same kind of uh, release cycle, the same kind of thinking behind uh, marketing it and stuff like that. And, and as far as cards not being worth anything, there are some cards that are still worth something right now. And these are cards that go in cubes that, um, you know, some EDH groups will uh, adopt silver border cards. Uh, those cards will stay, will hold their value. So will the, the tokens, the foil tokens and the basic lands. And so when you're buying a pack for $4 and the land is worth 2 or $3, I mean, that's almost better EV than, than just a normal magic pack, right? Oh, I think the lands are great. But I, yeah. I mean, they put the lands in there because they know the cards in the set are worth so little, right? Like, right, that's, that's smart. <laughs> that's, that's their ploy. Like, they could have put those lands in any other set, but they're like, oh, man, these cards are going to be so worthless that we need to put 2 or $3 lands in every pack. Otherwise, the, the, the price of packs just crash, essentially, right? Like, no one's interested in spending that money. Um, so I, I think your argument actually reinforces my point about okay. conspiracy and, and modern masters. What? That, so, uh, no, like we had MM3 earlier this year, right? 
So okay, I just I just want I just looked it up just so so people know. Um, Eldritch Moon came out in June, um, and then Eternal Masters came out in July. Conspiracy Two: Take the Crown came out in August, and then I was followed by Kaladesh in September. So that was the timeline for Magic. Just okay. Oh yeah, it was EMA, right? So, um, so going back to Modern Masters Three, like that was fine, but the packs are also ten dollars, right? And then Iconic Masters comes out in the same year. Packs are still $10. And people are just like, they're kind of sick of that, right? Like, you don't have, a lot of people don't have room in their budget to, to draft or play like $100 sealed events, you know, uh-huh. multiple times uh, in the year. They're just like not interested uh, in that. Um, so you, you can just see like they're oversaturating the, the style of product. I'm not sure that it matters that the releases are all close together because a lot of those player bases are fragmented. But you just like I don't want them to have two mon- two master sets in the same year. They did that this year. You can see that the second one failed. Cool. <laughs> and then uh, when they had Conspiracy Two, they released it too close to the other one as well. It's like not novel enough. Um, there wasn't enough demand from the people who the product was printed for to make it a success. Right? It should have still been a success because it's not like I played Conspiracy One the first time or anyone I knew. It was all the people that are like interested in unproducts that were playing conspiracy one the first time, right? They just weren't interested in conspiracy two the second time. And now you have unstable. It's very different than conspiracy. It's fun. I agree with that. Uh, and you have those people come out, they supported the product, but I hope that it does not increase its relevancy to the print cycle. Like it still needs to be multiple years before they do it again. If they do it next year or the year after I'm, I will say now it's a hundred percent that it will be uh, a failure compared to what their expectations are. Okay. Yeah. I can't speak really to that. I don't know. You know, I don't know what would happen if they printed one next year, but um, I don't think they should, but I don't know what would happen. You know, we do, we do know they printed conspiracy too. And it was a failure. That doesn't mean the same market. It's the same market, Medina. It's the same people. But the product's for them. That's a lot of assumptions. You know, you assume it's the same people. You assume the reason it failed was because of when it got printed. Instead of, you know, instead of the fact that it was between sets, you assume it was because they printed it, you know, um, one year away from the other one. You know, so I think that's just not, there's no correlation there. So we just don't know. There could be a bunch of reasons why Conspiracy 2 uh, was not a good not a good thing you know um because if, you, if you're drafting right and and there's no cycle right so if you're just drafting like the whatever the standard sets are and then they come out with conspiracy and like their conspiracy is out for like three weeks before you're drafting you know eternal masters or you know whatever it is um I, I'm, kaldesh I'm, was out there. yeah kaldesh you know then it's like why are people going to draft that when they're when they could draft kaldesh if, they, if there's no they need a dedicated space like a cycle for them to draft that because a lot of, especially conspiracy, which is a draft format, right? Like, um, you know, you need space to draft it. If if there's no space to draft it, it's not going to be commercial success because people are not going to be buying the packs just for buying them. It's the yeah, same I, thing. I agree. I yeah. agree. But they had eight weeks and no one drafted it. <laughs> they Kaladesh came out and people drafted it. It's not like it was a success until Kaladesh came out. It was a failure the whole way through. Okay. Right? Yeah, I don't have the numbers to, okay. to back that up. So maybe. I mean, from, all, from all my LGSs, they're just like, could not get rid of the product. Locally, uh-huh. like no one was interested in it. Um, I, think I, have to that, say, I, I don't know. That, that's just how it was. <laughs> well, I think. Well, John, John it's is not, right. It's not the same people that were playing Kaladesh Limited either. 
it, it's not it, it's it's not conclusive, but it's all we have. I, I do think that sets in general sell worse during the summer. Uh, that's been my opinion over like sub, the September December stretch. So that could have played a factor, but you know that's all the data we have. Um, Brian, any, any thoughts on this? <laughs> yes, Brian, save us. <laughs> Brian, are you still awake? <laughs> What's unstable? <laughs> you guys give, give me a quick breakdown. Okay, uh, unstable, unstable, uh, sealed GP or or popper. Like, popper. What, what's your vote? Popper. Um, I actually, I actually have a lot of thoughts about unstable. I think it's an example of man. There's so many things I want to talk about with this. I'll try and keep it brief. Uh, I, I think it's an example of Wizards finally catering to the people who actually buy their product. Because the people this set is targeted to buy far more product than we do. And I think there's a space for products like this, probably on a regular basis, given the changing face of magic. Um, Whoa. And the, the problem is that I'm not part of that changing face of magic, and I have no interest in it. And the development of these sets comes at a cost. Because it takes the same resources away from wizards, like resources they could be devoting to playtesting standard, or you know, working on the next set that's coming out. That they're now investing in creating this kind of goofy set, which has no appeal to me. Now, even though it has no appeal to me, I can look at this and recognize that it's done extremely well, extremely well. It's thoughtful. Um, the gameplay seems to be something that people really are connecting with. It's not like like I remember when the old. Uh, the first onset came out, you know, I was still very young back then, but I was playing and I bought some packs and I opened them and looked at the cards and I'm like, oh, these are neat. What can I ever do with this? There, You couldn't draft them. There's really just no application for them whatsoever. Um, so they just went into a box for me and I didn't see them again for 20 years. And then I unpacked those boxes and looked at them and I'm like, wow, these are garbage still. But this is an example of them doing a format correctly, understanding that the core of magic is the gameplay and still um you know making a good magic experience for an ever-expanding player base that is interested in things besides what the best tournament deck is that is not me and is not really you know the the way i think of what our cast is designed to address we talk about spiky issues and unstable was not for us but don't underestimate how huge the walmart buyer is the walmart buyer is everything in magic right now and they shape the game so much more than we do and it makes sense for wizards to pay attention to them right now that being said wizards as an institution has a problem which is half a design problem and probably it's probably it's actually a quarter design problem 75 percent a shareholder problem because when something hits it's very hard to go to your shareholders and say, we're not going to do that again. Hmm. Well, why? why? Why wouldn't you do that again? Do you see how much money we made with this set? Why would Rob you not? Says, Rob says not to. That's why. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, it's just historical evidence tells you it's a stupid idea. That's all. I, I, get, I get what you're saying, but you know how when you're going to a shareholders meeting and you're saying Unstable did record numbers. We can't believe how fantastically it sold. So when are you doing the next one? Oh, we're not for 10 years. I don't think so. Like, are you kidding me? You're doing it right now. And corporate comes gets involved and goes, I hear we're not doing an unstable set for 10 years. Why is that? I think you should do an unstable set this year. And then poof, there's an unstable set. Like, why do you think we get so many master sets? Obviously there's financial, there's a financial reason for everything. And uh, wizards is a business and rightfully so I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to 
disparage their decision to pay attention to financials. They should be paying attention to financials. But from a design perspective, it complicates things a little bit because it does produce the fatigue, fatigue that Rob's talking about. And I think that may be an unintended side effect of going back to the well very quickly with this kind of un thing. And, and I think they are probably apt to go back to the well too soon. I mean, look how this is how Magic Online got by and it's kind of horrible state for so many years as you bring it to shareholders and you say, look how much money Magic Online is making. And, but we want to invest $20 million in fixing the platform. What? Why? It's, it's taking money hand over fist. It's the most profitable part of your business. Why would you ever spend that much money? Obviously, it's working as it stands. And you saw the state that Magic Online eventually found itself in. So, you know, money's going to drive a lot of decisions on a corporate scale, and rightfully so. Um, it, is, it is my guess that the success of this unset will lead to more unsets uh, for, you know, my, my bottom line answer to your question, KYT. And there's a lot of factors behind it, but that's kind of why I think we're going to end up. Um, I, I don't know if they'll fire next year because obviously there's a lot of, if they're going to make it as well as this set, there's a lot of development time. It's not like Masters, which again, this is another reason why how you, you could ever tell, um, you know, a, a corporate board why you weren't making more Masters. They ask, so do you have to spend a lot of time designing the set? Well, no, actually, we just print a bunch of old cards we already have made. We just have to kind of grab the ones we want. How much time does that take? Uh, a tenth of the time of regular development. And you don't want to do this every six months. Why? Like, it makes no sense when you look at things in just black and white where you have an already uh, established resource that you sell at four times the price of a regular pack and taking money hand over fist. And that's why we have so much Masters right now. Um, Un is going to see the same fate, is my prediction. And maybe it's a good thing, though, because... This, this was a criminally underserved portion of the player base. They didn't get products for themselves. You know, conspiracy started to dip its toe in the waters, but there was still like a kind of weird edge to conspiracy. I, I don't know that it necessarily created the most fun environment to play in. I think it was probably still a little cutthroat for some people, whereas Unstable was about kitchen table fun and the new player base for Magic, and they just hit the nail on the head. So, get ready for more on. <laughs> I think I think you made a good point about the fact that it does take time to to um, develop the set. So they didn't know that the set was going to be a success, success. So they were probably waiting to see how did it do before they start development on another one. And so it will take time to develop it. Will take time to put it in the calendar. So probably not this this coming year, which. I think Rob will be happy. I'm just surprised you guys are not like excited to play it or whatever. At my oh, LGS, no. at There's my LGS, <laughs> it's crazy because like at my LGS, even the guys who are like cutthroat or like wanting to you know play play the pro tour, you know, uh, those guys are still playing it, enjoying it. It just surprises me that you guys have no interest. If I was a person with unlimited time, I would 100 percent sit down for some unstable drafts. But like. Mm -hmm. My time is precious, and my my focus is always on improving as a player, uh, returning to the Pro Tour, and I just I wish I had the time to invest in something like an unstable draft. If you catch me in the right circumstance, I would probably sit down and do an unstable draft with you. It's not like I'm dismissing it out of hand. It's something I never want to do. I If the circumstances were right, I would uh -huh. seek it. It's just I haven't gotten out of my way to do it thus far. If I'll tell you when I would play unstable. If I was already planning on drinking with seven other Magic players, and we were going to be pre-drinking long enough that we could finish a draft. Then <laughs> I would draft on stable. That would be fine. But like, I don't think that stores want players like me 
at the release event for Unstable, and I don't really want to be there either. Because, like, those people playing, uh, they don't care about winning. And I play Magic because I care about winning and improving. Like, like Brian said, right? Like, this is what I get out of the game. I get enjoyment from success and improvement. I don't get any enjoyment from doing something that is what I would consider you know, foolish or whatever. It just doesn't, it doesn't affect me in any way. And, <laughs> and like, I would be taking fun away from people by yep. just building a very well-balanced, good, limited deck and win as quickly as possible. And then they don't get to do their weird seven-card <laughs> unstable combo. You know, it's like, that's not fun for them. They're like, ah, I had to play against stupid Robin. He didn't let me do anything interesting. It's like, that's, that's not what you want at that event, right? So... It's um, totally, totally fair, man. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, 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 say, though, so I just stayed home and played Moto. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get you. Real quick, as an expert, though, I will say they knocked the squirrel artwork out of the park. The fact that they chose, like, mostly the tuft-eared red squirrels is so on point. Like, I can't even tell you how happy that makes me. That is one of my favorite squirrels. And I even tweeted out some celebratory uh, video of some of my squirrels this weekend. To uh, kind of get in the unstable mood, so they even hit the squirrels right on right on point. Yeah, the choice of squirrels was on. It was just perfect. My favorite squirrel. Maybe we're looking at this this whole thing incorrectly. Maybe what Magic needs is to get back to more squirrels. Yeah, just like more funny, interesting things in the in the normal game. Like just the content in the game has gotten so focused on a very serious storyline that's trying to be socially progressive and and like real talk all the time and it's just like sometimes people just want to see a werebear with some stupid text about (laughs) how he has the right to bear arms or like some stupid gorilla that's saying like the banana was this big you know and and like a lot of those same people that like unstuff like that and i think uh there's room in it uh in a normal set without affecting really anything for the competitive player, I would literally care less what the names or flavor text of any card in any set uh, is. It would not affect my enjoyment of Magic at all. So uh, maybe uh, their creative team needs to be a little more uh, loose on bringing some fun elements back into the normal storyline. Um, and then we don't have to go into this unset rabbit hole ever again. That would be great. I always say the Fogolios are my favorite artists in the history of Magic, and they were like super goofy. Old school. Old yeah, school. they were super goofy art. Uh, if you don't know them, go look at like uh, Goblin Artisans is one that comes to mind, and uh, what other classic ones? There's like a it, lore like clay statue or something like that. Uh, maybe, yeah, that sounds right. They just did kind of like a absurdist take on on the fantasy tropes, and and they were always my favorite cards as a kid growing up. So, um, yeah, I agree with Rob. I think that's a really like. Can we get a lighthearted set? Just one. Just just one time, a set that's kind of goofy. The cards are still powerful, but it's just like the back the backdrop is a little weird, a little out there. Why I don't not? even know if you have to do that. I think you can just like make 20% of the set. Like all the random like beasts that no one cares about, like some random 5-4 worm, just make it something stupid so that the people that care about stupid things are like, oh my god, did you see, like, look at this, a squirrel that's a 6-5, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, we played it so straight-laced for so long, it's like, let's, let's take a different approach for a little while, I'm fine with that. 
I actually heard a lot of people talking about the enjoying that sensibility of the of the art of unstable because it goes it harkens back to like earlier magic. Uh, that whole style of art is like old magic sets. It's not like the new stuff. Uh, not no offense to I like some of the new artists, you know, um, but I'm just saying like a lot of people felt that uh, that aesthetic took them back, you know, and they they kind of want to go back there. And so I I, I kind of agree with you. There's definitely a market for that. Oh, and then they can bring back Echo, and then they can bring back Deranged Tournament. I messed that Squirrels! Part. See? We're back at Squirrels. I, I just want to find Mana Wall Right? He makes four squirrels, right? And he pumps like, them. Deranged Tournament hits like the notes for everyone. Johnny's love it. Tinny's love it. Spike's love it. People that are kitchen table players love it. Like it, Everyone is happy with Deranged Tournament. This is true. Maybe it's going to go up in price. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if <laughs> uh, Brian, just a quick question. A, a lot of people on Reddit didn't like the promo for Draft Weekend, and I, I put the link in the chat, in our chat, and I wonder uh, what's, what's your quick squirrel evaluation. <laughs> Earl of Squirrel, and you're muted. This is far worse than the other version of this card that I saw. They didn't like the promo card, or they didn't like the art of the promo? The art, the, the new art for Earl of Squirrel. Yeah, the, the original Earl of Squirrel. I'm, I'm pulling up the original one right now. The, orig- the original. <laughs> oh, it's so much better. No, I actually, I looked into getting, I, I started doing some brief exploratory work, which once I found some prices, I kind of backed away from uh, getting the original art for Earl of Squirrel. And I, I haven't actually found it anywhere, but I, I think I was willing to spend a few thousand dollars. I think it may cost me a many many thousands of dollars to get earl of squirrel original artwork but uh this is it, probably in demand i would assume I, I think so too but the original is sick yeah the promo is awful the original is way better i think the promo <laughs> is more like the bishop of squirrel or something it doesn't look very yeah it, it's terrible whereas the earl of squirrel again the red tuft-eared squirrels which are by far the best squirrels and he's just got like that sick wig on yeah i'm all about this original earl of bit, squirrel. the promo squirrel is true uh, drawn by Matt Cavada. Like, doesn't he work for Watsy? He should know what a good squirrel looks like. Yeah, this is this is an artist. on him. Was it digital art or was it uh, was it actual? Uh, it could be digital. I really don't know. I mean, I, I looked at the artist and I, I think he had a site where he was selling stuff. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it doesn't disqualify it from being from the bulk of his work being digital. So like yeah, I said, I, yeah. I did some brief exploring and didn't go much further than that. But Brian, you know, if they have an unstable GP, one of the things that they might have that you could buy with all your the price tickets card. is a giant Earl of Squirrel. They, they still have it though, right? Like it's still possible that they could produce that. Unlikely though. I mean, this is a guarantee basically. So it's you should so, be lobbying for un You'll see me buying uh, black market event tickets at the next GP. So <laughs> 250, 250. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. Um, I guess that, that does it for the show. I have to th- say, John, I think we had an episode where successful was a joke. I remember this. No, it was. It was. That's what I thought he was like shouting out, you know? I feel so weird coming on this show because I'm not like a like a pro player, you know. <laughs> pro player. And uh, you know, I, you guys are you, you guys are you know you guys are great, and you're talking about 
being a better player and stuff like that. And I feel like, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like I don't fit in on this show, man. You know, <laughs> that's why you're, you're here at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but Dina, you, you, you fit in definitely because your opinion matters uh, a oh. lot when we're talking about finance, right? Like, you know, a lot about card finance. Still relevant. Still relevant. Uh, I mean, I, I'm just running my opinions based on uh-huh. uh, my engineering background and how I solve problems. But, you know, I, I, it's not to discount or discredit anything you said, obviously. Uh, oh, I appreciate that. Pioneers of MPG finance, right? <laughs> well, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to show up and talk about finance. Uh, you know, I take myself a lot less seriously these days because you know I, I feel like uh, I know a lot less than I than I used to think I knew. You know, so uh, but I'm happy to share my thoughts. You know, and and if you like those, then that's great. And if not, okay, good. KYT can book you in the weekend of rivals pre-release and then we can talk about how un did nothing over the christmas holidays (laughs) (laughs) you just want to bring me back in so you can beat me up (laughs) you'd be like yeah i crushed that that, that finance guy We're going to judge it on how successful. <laughs> I'm coming back with numbers. That's the other thing is KYT. Like, you want to come on? Like, I don't even know what I'm talking about. You know, I'm just like, yeah, I'll come on. I'm like sitting here all nervous. Like, Dude, what, what are they going to ask me? What are they going to ask me? You know, are they going to ask me about mulliganing? I hope not. Cause... <laughs> he does the same thing to us. Don't feel bad. I'm like, KYT, what are well, we talking about this week? Don't worry about it. We'll no, 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 no. You're, you're a special guest. That's why you're not. You're yeah, I don't special. get the inside host notes. I guess. What's supposed to have the, where are the, where are the show notes, KYC? What happened? <laughs> we, I guess Scotty Mack used to keep the A team on on tap with the show notes. I was nervous, man. I was like, "What if I don't know the answer and I'm gonna look like an idiot?" You know. <laughs> well, the whole the whole goal is to not make you look like an idiot. Um, <laughs> I think I think I've been pretty. I'm, I'm addicted to. I have to listen. I have to find the episode where we did the successful joke. Now I don't oh, know man. what it happened, but. It was <laughs> Um, okay, let's just wrap it up uh, so Kyle can edit. Uh, you, where, where can people find you? They can find you at Medina Makes Games, and they can check out your website, right? MedinaMakesGames.com. Right, MedinaMakesGames.com. My Twitter for game design and general gaming is Medina Makes Game with no S because they wouldn't let me put an S on the end of it. So it's what? Medina Makes Game. Like, I only make one game, but I'm making more than one game, guys. So I'm just waiting for Twitter to, like, let me put the S on that. Like, they need to give me one more character. Just one more. <laughs> oh, what a fail. <laughs> Medina makes game. I try to fit so many things in that. I spent like two hours trying different Twitter handles. So, uh, I don't know. My first one was game design noob. <laughs> I was like, but what happens when I become a, a good game designer? I can't still be a game design noob. <laughs> I think I think I new one's done. I think new one's done. <laughs> And uh, where can they check out your, your new, the link for uh, that game you're developing? Oh, okay. So the, the new game I'm making is called uh, The Big Dig. You can, you can check it out, playthebigdig.com. Uh, so I have print and pr- play files there. You can go and print it out and play it. Um, you might want to wait on that. Uh, in the next like, couple of weeks, I'm doing another revision. So I'm uh, developing it a little bit more. I have, a, I have a lot of questions to answer and stuff like that. So I'm just doing that. Maybe wait a couple of weeks. But if you want to check it out now, you can see all the cards and the rules on playthebigdig.com. Sweet. Thanks for coming on, John. We're going to have you back, hopefully, sometime near Rivals, release of Rivals. Uh, for people going to GP New Jersey, I think you're going to be able to meet Brian there. So hopefully, Brian's plan goes uh, 
like goes well of getting lucky. I'm signing squirrel tokens if anyone has them. <laughs> I, I'm, Brian, I'm <laughs> shipping you all of my my sealed good luck. Okay, you can have it. Yeah, I don't need it, bro. I already told you my strategy. I'm going to be the luckiest guy in the room. I already planned this out. <laughs> well, so there you go, kids. Uh, just just like go and rub Brian for good luck at the event. And he's just be shedding it everywhere he wants. <laughs> uh, shout out to all our First Strike producers. Uh, Jonathan Good, Kyle Smirchik, J. Thomas Eaton, Derek Pite, Matthew Kelly, Adrian Murchison. It's good. I don't, I don't think we need to talk about I think Aaron Barrett might, might have made a point in, in the Facebook group. I don't think uh, I think enough has been said about some of the more uh, controversial issues on Twitter, and we should just let it rest. And I think Brian, I always think of Brian appreciating that. I don't, I don't know why, Brian, but I think like every time I want to talk about some controversial thing, I feel like a sigh of relief if we don't <laughs> from you. I, yeah, I've said my part on that. I, I think people know where I stand, and that's enough for me right now. I don't think we need to rehash it every week. Okay. I thought we were going to do like an after hours, you know, controversial topic and we we're just going to totally just go at it, you know? I mean, let's just talk about it, man, right? Like, let's, the elephant is in the room, man. It's like, you know? Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I, <laughs> no one wants to hear our opinion on it if you want to hear anyone's opinion on it just go on twitter there's lots of opinions yeah. there uh, or you can I'm, sign up for the patreon and get in the facebook group where all the real talk is happening all the real talk is happening so don't forget get on that patreon man that's where that's where's that patreon.com slash first strike but, but honestly to get the strongest opinion you could actually scroll through brian's uh stream he, he has posted some very strong statements about uh everything so and uh yeah. Where can we find that? On twitter.com slash Brian Go. Wow. Am I right? I used to think, like, what, what's that name for? It's just like a <laughs> shortcut of uh, your last name, just like Medina makes game. It's a game. shortcut for <laughs> all <those> shortcuts. <laughs> oh, man. I did not know that was, I didn't know that was him. I'm going to follow him now. And, and I don't wonder if our Facebook members know like that your Facebook is different. It's not actually Brian Gottlieb. Uh, I think like the first strike nation figured it out, but I remember there was one day where some dude was like trying to blow me up on the Facebook page and there he's like talking. He's like, I'm, I'm in a conversation with him on Facebook and he's like, this guy's saying this and he completely misconstrued my point. And I'm like, no, actually that's me. And I'm definitely not saying that. <laughs> Brian Matthew. <laughs> Alrighty. I think uh, that does the first show. And we will see you guys next week, unless unless John really wants to get something in here. It looks like you're like const- no. <laughs> oh, who me? No, yeah, no. Yeah, you're like no. no. I was I was I was looking up Brian's Twitter account. That's all. Like, how do I add an S on my Twitter account? <laughs> all right. I need that. I need that S, man. How do I if get you, that? If you guys can figure it out, make sure uh, you know to leave in the comments. How, how does he make? How does he add an S? Uh, the S to make. <laughs> Solve the problem. Dina make game. <laughs> make make games. Sound <laughs> <laughs> like he can't. Doesn't know grammar. I think that's a good strategy. Um, we will see you all next week. And uh, if you enjoyed the video, if you want to see Medina at some point again, John, give give the video a thumbs up. And, and thanks for being in chat, Aaron. Always a pleasure to see you contributing. Of course, Sergio and everyone else that's in there and watching. So. Uh, See you guys, and, and make sure to hit us up on Twitter or on Facebook. So.